Welcome to the Estate Planning Project. My name is Mary Bart, Chair of Caregiving Matters. Our purpose with this project is public education on a wide range of estate planning topics. With a growing aging population, unprecedented wealth transfer from one generation to the next, and the dramatic rise in estate litigation, the need for estate planning public education has never been greater. This is a technology-based project that is producing podcasts, articles, videos, and blog posts. As a social collaborative initiative, experts such as lawyers, estate planners, and financial planners will share their thoughts and ideas on a bottomless list of estate planning topics. This project, however, offers general information only and is not a substitute for seeking personalized professional advice. And our guest expert today is Cynthia Hebert Simpkin, and she is a lawyer with Tradition Law based in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Welcome, Cynthia. Uh, thank you very much, Mary. I'm happy to be here. Well, let's get started. I do have a series of questions for you. And so the first one is, is there anything that you would like us to know before we actually get started? Yes, there is. One of the things that it's very important for people to remember if they're listening to a podcast like this or if they're doing research on the Internet and they're reading articles is that the law in relation to uh, issues like wills powers of attorney or living wills, those are provincially based pieces of legislation, which means that each province will have its own version of legislation that's going to affect the person depending on where they live. Now, I live in Manitoba. I practice in Manitoba, so I'm familiar with the Manitoba legislation. And some of the legislation might be very similar. For example, the legislation on the preparation of wills is often similar, but they'll have different twists depending on where you live. But each province will also have separate legislation dealing with powers of attorney. And that, of course, is the situation where someone is helping to manage your affairs while you're alive. Maybe you need help or maybe you're incompetent. And also living wills. And living wills are the documents that permit someone to make a medical decision for you. In Manitoba, that document to make a medical decision is called a health care directive. And the person who's making the decision in Manitoba is called the health care proxy. In another province, it's going to be a different name. So when we're talking today, I'm going to use Manitoba terms for certain jobs. For example, in Manitoba, the personal representative is either an executor under a will, or if there is no will, and then it's the administrator who's appointed by the court to look after the estate. So that's the term that we use in Manitoba, personal representative. And there's also some general terms that I want people to be aware of. A specific gift is when you're giving someone a particular item. I give to Mary my carpet. A residual or a residuary gift is when somebody is made a beneficiary of the portion of the residue. And the residue is essentially the gross assets of the estate minus the debts and the specific gifts. So a residuary or a residual beneficiary is getting a share of whatever is left at the end of the administration of the estate. Okay, thank you for that answer. My next question is, 
and people often ask this, I'm sure of you, is why does my lawyer ask for so much information about my assets and my debts? It does seem to be an awful lot of information sometimes, and, and I want to assure people it's not that, that lawyers are necessarily nosy parkers or so terminally curious about what's going on in your life. Um, our job is not just to find out who's going to do certain jobs in your uh, estate planning documents. So it's not just who is going to be the executor, who's going to be the beneficiaries, and then we prepare the documents. Um, when I'm meeting with clients, I'm also talking to them about the assets and debts. I'm talking about the people who are going to do those certain roles in your estate plan. And I'll also be talking to clients about how that estate is going to flow after their death so that the client then understands when I die, this is what's going to happen. So the lawyer will want to talk to you about what you own and what is going to happen on your death. So for specific examples, um, do you have assets where there's joint ownership with a right of survivorship or a beneficiary designation, which means that it's not going to be part of your estate? Are any of your beneficiaries getting money from you now that should be considered when dividing the estate between other beneficiaries? So if, for example, you've got a child who needs a little bit more financial help now and you've, been, and you've given them over the course of the years $40,000, is that just a gift of $40,000 and there's no evening up process with your other children? Or do you want to try and address that in your will so that at the end of the day, everybody is treated absolutely the same? There also may be tax considerations like registered investments or cottage properties or rental properties. Maybe there's capital gains on investments. Do you have private company shares that need to be dealt with in a particular way? Do you have any trust funds that need to be set up in the will? There might be a trust fund for a minor child or a minor grandchild, or maybe you have a beneficiary who isn't able to manage their own assets and they need to have a special kind of trust set up for them. And then when looking at the overall scope of, of your financial affairs, is there in fact going to be enough money to pay the estimated debts? When you meet with the lawyer, it's not going to tell you what you own or what you owe to anybody on the date of your death. It's to get a picture of what you've got right now and just a rough idea of how your estate would work. During the course of your lifetime, you're going to continue to use your assets. You'll have additional savings. You'll have other debts that arise. And the will speaks from the moment of death. It speaks to what you own and what you owe on the date of your death. But you need to take a look at that overall plan when you're making your documents so you know what's going to happen. It's a terrible thing to leave an executor with a bankrupt estate where there's more debts than there's assets. And that creates a lot of stress and tension in families when they realize that that's the situation that they've been left. And the questions about assets and also debts relates to thinking about your enduring power of attorney, the document that would allow somebody to help manage your affairs if you are incompetent. The person who's going to be doing that needs to have a sense of, of what you own and how that is going to be available in order to deal with certain aspects of your care. And then questions about assets and debts when the lawyer is asking them also might relate to determining the capacity to actually sign the legal document. The capacity to sign the document is an important aspect, especially when we're dealing with older adults. 
if I have somebody who's coming into my office and, you know, they're in their mid-40s, they're perfectly healthy, there's no sign of an early onset dementia of any kind, my questions about capacity are going to be different than if I have somebody coming into my office who's in their mid-80s and perhaps they are getting more forgetful and there are questions about whether or not they are able to sign legal documents. Two entirely different situations. And asking questions about what somebody owns is part of the test that a lawyer will do when considering the, the question of capacity to make and sign the documents at all. That's very interesting, you know, because I'm sure you see older adults who come in and as you talk to them, I, I'm just picturing someone who might be in their 80s or 90s come in and they might be confused if they still own the family cottage or the RV or a certain car. And you would use that to help determine if you think they're capable. That's very interesting. There's many aspects to interviewing an older adult. And one of the things that we have to remember is that, quite frankly, all of us have frail memories at the best of times, right? I'm now 60. Um, I don't know if I can always recall what it was that I did last week but I have a good grasp on what my assets and debts are. I have a good grasp on who my family is. And one of the things when dealing with older adults, especially if there's concern about any form of dementia, because as you know, there are dozens, is that there is a social awareness for many people who come in that they know how they're supposed to act. They can be very engaged. They can answer questions. They say it with complete authority. You believe them absolutely. But if you were to ask someone else in the family, well, is this actually the situation, you would find out that it was entirely not true. So as the lawyer, when we're interviewing an older adult, we can't necessarily rely on the fact that the person is so certain of their information, because it, in fact, might not be true. There is a particular skill set that we have to develop when interviewing clients where there's a concern about the capacity. No doubt there's a special skill that set that you develop over time. That's amazing. And it brings me to my next question, which is what are the assets of my estate? So for the purposes of your estate once you've died, the assets of the estate are those things that you actually own on the date of death that are in your name alone. And that's a critical distinction. If you own assets with someone else that are joint with right of survivorship, then it is not part of your estate. And where we are going to most often see this is with a spouse, with a surviving spouse. Perhaps the house is owned jointly with right of survivorship. All of the bank accounts are owned jointly. Well, that's not part of the estate of the person who has died. That all goes outside of the estate to the spouse or to the common law partner. If an asset is owned jointly with a child, then there's a presumption at law that the child is holding it in trust for you. And so then it is an asset of the estate unless there is evidence that you wanted the child to have the asset on the date of death. Um, if you own an asset with someone else that is owned as tenants in common, that's different than joint tenants. If you own the asset as tenants in common, then your estate has an asset that the value of which is related to your percentage of interest, and then the personal representative of your estate is going to have to deal with the other owner when dealing with cleaning up your estate. If you have beneficiary designations on your assets, then those assets 
are not part of your estate. So you might have a beneficiary designation on a life insurance policy. That is not part of your estate. It is outside of the estate. And you also have to be careful when dealing with beneficiary designations and look at the potential tax consequences. So for example, if somebody has a tax-free savings account, a TFSA, if you have something called a successor annuitant on it, that's the term that they use, then it passes to the successor annuitant on a tax-free basis because that is the type of account that it is. But there might be tax ramifications for the person who receives it depending on what they do with it. If there's a beneficiary designation on a registered investment like an RSP or a RIF, or maybe somebody has a lira from a pension plan, then the beneficiary is going to get the money, but the estate has to pay the income taxes on it. So when making your estate plan, a review of the beneficiary designations is going to be important because you may think that it's going to work a certain way, but it then turns out that it's going to do something else entirely. An asset could also be something like money that someone owes you. So maybe you lent money to a brother and at the date of your death, he still owes the money to you. Then that's an asset of the estate that the personal representative has to deal with. Now, that debt to you as an asset might be subject to a statute of limitations so that there's a certain period of time in which you have to enforce the debt and after that, the debt cannot be pursued. So steps have to be taken in order to make sure that that debt is still alive and collectible on the date that you pass away. And not every asset might actually have a dollar value that we can attach to it, but it might still be something that the personal representative has to deal with. So it could be something like the points on a credit card or a loyalty card, right? That's an asset. And then the personal representative has to check with the card itself to see what happens on death and if anything can be done with that. The assets can also be digital assets like the songs you purchased on a website, or maybe your photographs. And there, the personal representative is having to check with the website or app about what is allowed after death. And this is something that, that I should also know um, what's going to happen with those things when, when I pass away. And my clients should know that. And one of the trickiest things can sometimes be the assets uh, being something that you own in a foreign country. It could be something like a vacation home. So maybe you have, uh, being in Manitoba, the most popular spots here are Arizona and Palm Springs. I know in the eastern part, Florida is very popular for a winter destination or a winter home, right? So that vacation home is, is an asset in a foreign jurisdiction. There also might be a bank account that you have down there in order to deal with the vacation home or to be able to take money out of the account when you're down in the winter. Maybe it's a motor home in a senior's park. Maybe it's a timeshare. And that's still an asset. And sometimes people aren't thinking about, well, you know, that timeshare that I bought in Mexico five years ago and I paid $300 per year for and I go away for a couple of weeks. They don't think about that as being an asset, but it is. And the personal representative is going to have to deal with it. And it can be challenging to deal with some of these assets. So if someone has assets in a foreign jurisdiction, then one of the considerations might be, do special documents have to be prepared in order to deal with that foreign asset if you still own it and now you're incapable of managing your own affairs? So you're not dead. It's not the personal representative who's dealing with it. 
It's now the attorney under a power of attorney that's going to be dealing with it. And will the Canadian power of attorney be accepted by the foreign jurisdiction? This can be an important consideration because otherwise you might be creating a situation where the attorney has problems in dealing with your assets. And of course, there are potential tax consequences when we own something that lives in a foreign country. Now, this isn't even a complete list, but it gives you a really good idea where you can see how important it is to review things to see just what you have. Another thing that people often forget about, co-op memberships, right? When I join the local co-op store and I get, you know, that little dividend check at the end of the year, that membership might not be worth very much, but it is an asset. And to add to that, on the other side, what are the debts of my estate? <laughs> so the simplest answer is the, the debts are going to be the money that you owe someone personally. So the debt that I owe to someone. There might be a debt, however, like a mortgage on a home with your spouse or common-law partner. The thing with a mortgage is, is that usually it's going to be in both names, right? The parties have bought the house together. They own it jointly with right of survivorship. They both signed on to the mortgage. And so then the surviving spouse or common-law partner who gets the house is also going to get the debt. But you might have a debt that you owe with someone else, and there is something called joint or several liability. And joint and several liability means that the person to whom you owe the money could collect it from the group of the debtors, which would include you, or they can also go just against one of them. Maybe it's you. If you borrowed money from a bank or a friend, then that would be a debt of the estate. Um, there's a common question about credit cards. You know, somebody will phone and say, well, my, I discovered that my husband took out this credit card and I didn't know anything about it and I never signed on to it. If the other spouse or common law partner did not sign on to the contract to get the card, then they may not be liable. But if it turns out there was a secondary card that was then issued to them and they were using that secondary card, perhaps they are. Something that they'll have to, the personal representative will have to think about. Another question that comes up is, did you co-sign a loan for a child or a friend? Maybe the child couldn't qualify for their first mortgage on their own and you end up co-signing on the mortgage. Well, when you're talking to your lawyer about the estate plan, you want to deal with that. What happens if you are still co-signed on that mortgage on the date of your death? How do you get the estate off? How do you get the child who is the other person on the mortgage or on the debt to take responsibility for it and how is that dealt with in terms of the administration of the estate? The first job for the personal representative of the estate is to pay your debts. So that's going to include the funeral expenses. That will include the debts that you had in your own name on the date of death. That's going to include the income taxes on your final personal tax return, which is the tax return which goes up to the date of death. And that's also going to include any tax returns for the estate. So those are the tax returns that are filed for income that's earned after the date of death. Another debt is going to be the probate fees that are paid to the court if you need to get probate. There's also going to be professional fees. There will be the lawyer that you hire to help with the estate administration. There will be the accountant that you may hire in order to deal with the tax returns. And if there's a fight in the estate, if not all of the beneficiaries are getting along and there's disagreements and then there's estate litigation, then there's the additional legal fees and disbursements for dealing with the estate fight. If you've been married before, and you're preparing documents, 
Your estate planning lawyer is also going to want to see a copy of any court orders or separation agreements that you might have from that previous marriage or marriages because they're going to want to see what are your obligations, if any, to these former spouses or to the children from a former marriage. And before the personal representative can pay anything to the beneficiary, the debts have to be paid. And so that's why it's so very important that when you're doing your estate plan, you're trying to make sure that there's sufficient assets to pay your debts. Well, that's certainly very complicated. And, you know, it really speaks to the value of really making a partner with a lawyer and an accountant. And part of our goal with this project is for people to listen to this podcast and just understand truly how complicated this is. And everybody, I would stress everybody needs wherever you live to go and hire a lawyer and an accountant or a tax planner because just your simple overview of assets and debts will be overwhelming for many. And I cannot stress strongly enough the value of hiring people like you, Cynthia, to help them through this whole process. I often feel like the voice of doom when I'm meeting with new clients because as part of my process, we send out a checklist and I think the checklist is now about 12 or 13 pages. And not every question on the checklist is going to apply to everybody, but we send out the checklist and then we review it. And I know that just like everybody else, I too would like to think that I had a simple life. And I would love to think that I could go in to see the lawyer and say to the lawyer, here's my assets and debts. It's very straightforward. I just want to leave everything to my spouse and then everything to my kids. And if my kids die before me, then everything to my grandchildren, right? That's a simple estate plan. And sometimes I love it when I get a simple estate plan because quite frankly, they don't happen all that much anymore. Our lives are so much more complicated than the lives that our grandparents or even our parents lived. When you think about it, you know, 60, 70 years ago, there was no RRSPs, there wasn't LIRAs, there wasn't TFSAs, there, there was nobody in my grandparents' generation who was owning a motorhome in an Arizona park. It was a simpler time in terms of what people were owning. And as we've acquired more things, it then becomes complicated. I appreciate that people want to believe that their life is simple, and maybe it is. But it's not until you actually sit down and you look at what you've got that you can figure out whether or not you've got a simple estate plan or whether or not there's one of these little quirks that you need to address. That's a very good point. And I would say you are the voice of reason. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) My next question is, what if I've given somebody something in my will? Do I still get to use it while I'm alive? Yes, of course you do. The will is a document that you sign, but it does not take effect until the moment that you die. The will takes effect from the moment of death, so you have absolute use as your assets during your lifetime, unless you've agreed to a a particular kind of arrangement. So, for example, if you have in a separation agreement an obligation that you have to name your children as the irrevocable beneficiary of a life insurance policy, then that means you are not allowed to change the beneficiary designation without permission from the children. So 
that's an asset that's tied up in a particular way that you don't get to use it the way that you would want. But generally, most people have very few restrictions on their assets, and so they can do with the assets as they wish during your lifetime. You can use it. You can sell it. You could give it to the beneficiary while you're still alive so you get to see the smile on their face. You could give it to someone else entirely and not even the person that you had named in the will. If you've made a specific gift of something, let's use the example of jewelry, and you don't own that asset on the day of your death, then the gift is said to have a deemed, A-D-E-E-M. That's what happens when you don't own something on the date of your death. So in that case, the beneficiary in the will who is supposed to get the jewelry will not get anything unless in your will you specified that they were supposed to get something else if you did not own the asset on the date of the death. If the beneficiary dies before you, then the gift is said to lapse, L-A-P-S-E, like a lapsed memory. <laughs> so the gift is said to lapse. And then what's going to happen with the gift will depend on the wording in the will. And whether it's personal property or land, and there also might be provincial legislation that deals with lapsed gifts. So, for example, the estate planning lawyer should be running through those scenarios with you. Um, asking questions like, does the person only get the gift if they are alive on the date of your death? And what happens if that item does not exist on the date of your death? And then there are ways to word the gift in the will so that there is more clarity about what you want to do. So I'm going to give you some examples. And I think I'm good on the law on all of these. <laughs> and I think I've made it as straightforward as possible. But again, there are so many little twists and turns that can happen with wording. And this is why there's so much case law on these issues. So let's use this gift. I give to my friend Joseph Smith, if he survives me, the car I own on the date of my death. So if you have a car, then Joseph gets it. If you do not have a car, then Joseph gets nothing. If Joseph dies before you, then nobody gets the car, and it forms part of your general estate, and it will be dealt with as part of the residue. So that's one example. Let's use a second example. I give to my friend Joseph Smith, if he survives me, the car I own on the date of my death, but if I do not own a car, I give him the sum of $10,000. You die. If you have a car, Joseph gets it. If you don't have a car, then Joseph gets $10,000. And here's a third example. I give my emerald ring to my sister, Margaret Jones. So in that scenario, if Margaret is alive on the date of death, then she gets the emerald ring. That's the simplest thing. If she is alive on the date of death and there is no ring, then she gets nothing. But it can get more complicated. If Margaret dies before you, then there might be a fight about what happens with the ring depending on the provincial legislation. Here in Manitoba, in our Wills Act, there's a section that has been interpreted to say that the ring would go to Margaret's children because she was your sister. Now, if the wording had been, I give my emerald ring to my sister Margaret Jones if she survives me, then the children would not get the ring. So that's why it's so important to work through those scenarios with the specific gifts and so that you are clear about what is supposed to happen. That's very interesting. And Cynthia, I'd like to get your opinion on something. 
Is it a good idea to add my son or daughter as joint owners of my accounts or my home? My simple answer on that is generally no. Unless you've discussed it with an estate planning professional and a lawyer so that you are aware of all the consequences. Now, this is a kind of estate planning strategy is, that's very common because people think it's going to make it easier for their family to deal with their assets if the person needs help or if they're concerned about paying probate fees. Now, if you have a valid power of attorney that's going to allow somebody to manage your affairs if you are incompetent or to help you if you're still competent but you need somebody to act as your legs, if you've got that valid power of attorney, then a joint ownership strategy isn't needed because they're already going to have the ability to look after your assets. If the concern is about paying probate fees, then that also depends on the jurisdiction where you're living in. So it might not be as big a concern. But when people are putting their children on assets, they are often not thinking about the kinds of repercussions that can be there. They just think it's going to be easy. This is a great idea. I'm going to put my kids on. They'll be able to use my bank account. That sounds like a great idea. So here's the first issue. When you put your children on your assets as joint owners, you then lose control of your ability to do with the asset as you want. So if you put your children as the joint owners on a house, and you've now decided you want to sell the house, you need the children's permission to sell the house. And there are cases where the children who are the joint owners have said, no, <laughs> no, mom, I'm not going to let you sell the house. And in these cases, the parent has then gone to court to try to get the house back, saying to the judge, well, it's my house, and, and that child should transfer it back to me because it was my house. And the decisions in some of those cases is, you don't get the house back. You made a gift of half, and that child is now a joint owner, and the court will not simply reverse the gift and give you back your house. So you can lose control of your assets. A second issue, if you put someone other than your spouse as a joint owner in your bank or investment account, then they can go in and spend the money because you've given them the authority to go in and take money out of the account. There also can be tax consequences. The house that we live in, is special for tax purposes because there's something called a principal residence exemption, and that means that we don't pay any capital gains on it. So the increase in value between the day that we bought it and the day that we sell it, there's no capital gains on the house that is subject to the principal residence exemption. But if you transfer that house into joint names with your child, now you've got a house where half of it no longer has personal residence exemption because it belongs to the child. The child does not live in the house. They may have their own house, so they don't have a personal residence exemption on your house. That means that the child then has a capital gains issue when they want to sell the house after your death. And they'll be paying capital gains on their half of the house that they own from the value as of the date they acquired it, so the sale value, so that's going to be the calculation of the capital gains. They'll also pay capital gains from the date of transfer to the date of sale for the half of the house that they got from you, if the house went up in value, there might be some exemptions available if they were living in the house, but there's still going to be some tax to pay. So this is not what people are thinking about when they're transferring half the house. But it's an even bigger issue if you're transferring something that is not your principal residence. 
So let's say you're transferring a cottage or a rental property to a child or so that you're going to own it jointly by right of survivorship. So now this isn't the house that you live in. And when you transfer that one half interest to the child, there's a capital gain that's immediately payable by you because it is not your principal residence. So you're transferring the asset but triggering a tax consequence for yourself. And if you're dealing with bank accounts or investment accounts, then there can be issues about who is supposed to be paying the taxes on the income that's being earned. And the fourth problem that comes up is that if you have more than one child and you're only putting one of them on the asset, then you're essentially creating the potential for a big estate fight if the other children don't know about it and certainly if they don't agree. So joint ownership with a child creates a resulting trust on your death, which is what I mentioned earlier. They are said to be holding it in trust for you unless that child can prove that you wanted them to have that house or that asset after you died. And very often the evidence of the donor's intention for the child to have it is very poor. And that means litigation. And that costs the estate more money. So there are four reasons why you need to think twice about putting your child or anybody else as a joint owner on your property. Now that of course excludes spouses. Spouses are a different issue. Joint ownership with a spouse is a different issue. And there are ways to deal with joint ownership with someone other than a spouse in order to help reduce probate fees. But when you're thinking about those plans, you really need to consult with the estate planning professional so they can walk you through the various scenarios, prepare the appropriate documents in order to try to reduce things as much as possible. Well, that brings up a good point, and you did highlight on it. So my next question is, what are probate fees, and do I have to worry about planning for paying for them? Okay. Probate fees are the fees that are charged by any province in order to admit the will to probate. Now, when we talk about probate, this is essentially the court seal of approval on the documents. We talked about how the will takes effect from the moment of death. Probate does not give the personal representative any more authority than they had at the moment of death. But probate is essentially the court seal of approval saying, yes, this is the last will and testament. Yes, this is the personal representative, and this is the person who's going to be looking after things. The banks will want that. The financial institutions will want it. And land titles office will want it if there's any kind of real property. So when you own all the assets jointly with your spouse, probate probably will not be required. The bank accounts will pass by right of survivorship. The pension plan will have a beneficiary designation on it. The registered investments will have a beneficiary designation on it. So there may be no assets in the name of the deceased in their own name. And in that circumstance, the first person to die, probate's not going to be required. But after the second spouse dies, so when both parents in a family situation are gone, then yes, the family will need to get probate in order to deal with the authority to deal with the banks and the land titles office. So the probate fees are going to be based on the value of the estate on the date of death, and that's going to vary from province to province. The highest probate fees in Canada are in Nova Scotia, where the probate tax is $16.95 per $1,000 of assets. The next highest is in Ontario, where it's $5 per thousand for the first $50,000 and then $15 per thousand after that. And after that, it's British Columbia, where it's about $14 per thousand. 
But after that, the probate fees drop significantly. The lowest is in the Yukon, where it's a $140 flat fee. The planning to reduce probate fees is then going to be more important in provinces where there are high probate fees. So you can see in provinces like British Columbia, Ontario, and Nova Scotia, planning to try to reduce probate fees is going to be important. It will be less important in provinces where the fees are lower. In Manitoba, we've got a probate charge that is $7 per thousand or 0.7%. So it can be less than an issue here. And there's, it has a whole bunch of different names. It's, it's called a probate fee in some provinces, a probate charge, an estate administration tax, a probate tax. It's all the same thing. It's the fee that you're paying to the court to file the documents based on the value of the assets on the date of death. If there's a need to try to do planning to reduce probate fees, then there are strategies that can be done. But you really need to look at what do you own and whether or not it's worthwhile to go into that kind of level of planning. And that's also why it's very important if you're reading articles online that you look to see where the articles are coming from before you start panicking and thinking it's something that you have to do. I will get calls from people who think that they absolutely have to plan in order to reduce probate fees, but when we talk about it, they've been looking at an article that came out of Ontario, where of course it's going to be an issue. Manitoba, not so much. So when doing your online research, which is fantastic, great that you do it, be aware of where the article is coming from and make sure that you then check in your own jurisdiction about whether or not that is an issue for you. That's a really great point. Thank you for sharing that. I bet a lot of people do online research and think it's a blanket statement when they Google it and your idea of going specifically to where it was written and, and by whom too would give you great insights to either follow that up or completely ignore it and do more research. Exactly. Absolutely. So my next question for you is, what if my son or daughter dies before me? Does their share go to their spouse or common law partner? This is a common misconception, and that's not the way that estates will generally flow. If you've left a gift in a will to your child and the child dies before you, it does not automatically go to the spouse or common law partner. What happens to that gift to your child has to be specified in the will. So what most often happens is people will say, I'm naming the residue of my estate shall go to my child. But if the child dies before me, then that share goes to the children of that child. So that essentially is going to the grandchildren. Very common strategy. We want the gift to go by blood. The gift would not go to the spouse or common law partner unless you specifically said so in the will. So if you want to benefit the in-laws, then you need to make sure that that's specifically defined in the will. If you die without a will, then the intestate uh, legislation, which is in effect in your province, is going to decide where the share is going to go, and that's always by blood. A couple of considerations when thinking about who's a beneficiary. You might have a child who's been married for 40 years to somebody who had children from their first marriage. Those step-grandchildren that are just like your own, those are not beneficiaries. They are not beneficiaries unless you find a way in the will to word it so they will be beneficiaries. Or even in a step-parenting relationship, right? 
you may be married, you've raised your stepchildren, they've been part of your lives for the last 50 years, and you believe them to be just like your own children. Well, if you don't deal specifically with the language in the will to make sure that they are treated as if they were your own, then they do not inherit by blood because they are not your blood. Another consideration is, you know, people will come in and they gave a child up for adoption at some point, or perhaps they themselves were adopted and they wonder if they have a claim on the estate of their birth parents. According to the adoption legislation in Manitoba, they would not. And I believe that that's fairly standard across the country, but it's again something you would need to check with your own provincial legislation. When someone is adopted in Manitoba, they are no longer the child of their birth parents, and they are the child of their adoptive parents. So any laws that relate to inheritance where you're getting it by blood, you're treated as if you were the child by blood of the people who adopted you, and you have no claim on the birth parents. So these are, again, things that when you're doing your checklist and you're meeting with the lawyer, you need to be clear on, I called them my children, but they're actually my stepchildren, and I want them to be treated just like as if they were my child. So you need you need to have clarity on those issues. So just a question on that. So a couple adopts a child uh-huh. legally, and so then that child cannot go back to his birth parents to claim anything. They cannot. That's true. But can he go back to his parents who adopted him and, and be part of that? Absolutely. See, so that's, that's then that he's treated as if he was born to them as if he was, he or she is treated as if they were of the same blood. Thank you for that clarity. That is very, very interesting. And my final question for you is, can a beneficiary of the estate also be the executor in my will or act as my attorney under the power of attorney? The simple answer to that one is yes. Very often people will come in and they're going to have the same person who's named as their attorney and their medical decision maker during their lifetime, and then it's going to be the executor after their death. Now, in couples who are married or in common law partners, it's going to be their spouse or common law partner. But very often there's one child who is perhaps the responsible one, and that child is the alternate executor and the successor attorney and the alternate healthcare proxy. And that's just fine. The important questions that your estate planning lawyer should be asking is whether the person that you want to choose is, in fact, the best person to do the job. For example, if you've got the child who has declared personal bankruptcy and so has shown you and the court system that they aren't necessarily doing a great job on their personal finances, maybe that person should not be your first choice as an attorney or executor. And the same is going to be true if you have somebody that you want to name, but you know that person has problems making decisions. If they have problems making decisions, maybe they're not the best choice. If you've got a child who's always borrowing money from you, hmm, again, maybe not the best choice to do any jobs that are relating to finances. You might have somebody in your life that you want to name to be your healthcare proxy, the person who's going to be making that medical decision if you cannot. Well, if that person finds it very difficult to talk about tough medical issues and won't make a decision about them, then that is not the person that you want to be making a medical decision for you. So what you're generally looking for is you're looking for someone who has a good 
business-like head on their shoulders who's going to be able to do the work that is necessary even though they may emotionally be struggling because perhaps you are in ill health, perhaps you've passed away. It's not that they're required to be perfect. They're not supposed to be robots. And we recognize that sometimes the administration of the estate might take a little bit longer because the executor is struggling with some of the emotional issues around the death of the person. But still, they have to at some point be able to set that aside and be able to take a good business-like approach. When somebody is acting as the attorney under a power of attorney, so you're now acting for your mom or your dad because they're incapacitated and can no longer participate in their day-to-day -day financial life. Treat that like a business. It is the business of mom and dad's finances. And the same thing will be true for the personal representative of the estate. Yes, it is difficult to lose the person that you loved but you have to be able to deal with it in a business-like fashion. It is the business of wrapping up this person's financial life and distributing the estate to the beneficiaries because that's where the duty lies is to the beneficiaries of the estate. It's going to be very difficult for people who have small families or no families at all or if the children are living in a different province. The children who are living in a different province might still be able to do the job. It just might be a little bit more challenging. These days, we've got email, we've got automatic banking, we've got couriers. So perhaps they can do the job of an attorney. And they certainly could do the job of an executor. Just a little bit more time, a little bit more money. But if your children are living in a different country, then that is an entirely different issue then there's going to be tax and decision-making issues that arise when they are not living in Canada. It may be that if they are living in a foreign country, your investment company will not allow them to make decisions from that foreign country. It may be if they're living in a foreign country and they're managing the assets of a Canadian citizen that they have tax requirements that they then have to meet in their own country and things that they have to do. It may be your only option, but it's important to know what those issues are ahead of time so that you're preparing the appropriate documents to address those issues. Another option for people who have very small families or perhaps where someone is living far away might be a corporate trustee. And that then means using one of the trust companies. But you don't get to simply sign a document and say, I'm going to appoint this trust company as my attorney and as the executor. You have to consult with the trust company and find out if they want to act. There's going to be a consultation process. The trust company will review the situation. They'll make the decision on whether or not they're going to act. And if they are, then there are very specific provisions that they want to have included in your power of attorney if they're going to be acting as an attorney, and in your will, if they're going to be acting as a personal representative. There's certain powers and authority that they need to have that's in the document that would not be part of a standard document. So a corporate trustee might be a great option for you, but you have to consult with the trust company and make sure that it's going to work. That's very interesting, and everything that you have said today has been so incredibly full of wisdom and I thank you so much for your insights and sharing some of your years of experience with us. I'm sure our audience will learn tremendous amounts from what you have said today. 
So, Cynthia, could you share your contact information with us, please? Absolutely. So, we have a website, and it's www.traditionlaw.ca. Sometimes people think it's traditional law. Well, I suppose, yes, we do traditional law, but that's not the name of the firm. It's traditionlaw.ca. Um, my email address is chsimkin, C-H-S-I-M-K-I-N, at traditionlaw.ca. And my direct telephone number is 204-947-6803. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope that people reach out to you if they live in Manitoba. And if they don't live in Manitoba, at least listen to this podcast and take it over to your lawyer wherever you live and get started with your estate planning issues. Thank you, Cynthia. You're welcome.